Welcome to episode one of A World on Fire, an All-Star Squadron podcast. I'm your host, Billy D, and alongside me is... Herman Lowe. How are you doing today, Herman? Well, I'm fine, thanks, Billy. I'm actually more than fine because, wow, this is it. This is the show that you and I have been planning at least a year for, and mm -hmm. uh, obviously featuring one of our favorite properties in comic books and uh, greatest team books I've ever read, at least. I don't know about you. Uh, but um, we love this comic book, and we're finally here. So it's been a journey. We've made it, and I hope we can give the listeners what, what they want out of the show. Yeah, I mean, you're a lot more steeped in this series than I am. I came into this series pretty late. Only about uh, five or ten years ago did I start picking up some issues, and I saw what really caught my eye was I saw issue number one on the cheap and it blew my mind because I had heard many people, yourself included, uh, praise this series. So I assumed, wow, it's going to be real expensive to get the first issue. And I think it was maybe $5. And I thought, well, I'm going to grab that. That seems super cheap to me. So I don't know if they had a high print run on this or what, but I just read the first issue and thought it was fantastic and bought a lot for, you know, two through 10 and then scattershot issues here and there. And still have a couple more to go, but. I've got a pretty good uh, collection here, but I know you've got them all. So, uh, yeah, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, this was this is a series that was near and dear to my heart from the very beginning, mostly because of two reasons. My dad, he used to read it along with me because you know he's a World War II nut and a, mm -hmm. a big fan of history. He used to be a history teacher after his art career <laughs> went belly up <laughs> for a while, but you know, um. He, it was very, very rare that he would, you know, read some of my comics. He, he would pick up some of my warlords, you know, Travis Morgan warlords with, with Mike Grell um, on, uh, as a creator. He would love them. Anything with war in the title, he'd love the Sergeant Rock comics. And then he would also pick up the odd Jonah Hex issue here and there. Um, but, you know, and uh, why I love these moments is who, who doesn't like it if their dad picks up a comic uh, of theirs and then afterwards wants to discuss it with you? You know, that's that's very mm. rare, right? So Oh my gosh, yeah. My dad did that with stuff like, you know, like I mentioned, Jonah Hex, uh, Warlord and the War Comics and um and then of course All Star Squadron. He definitely did that. He did I never did that with Weird War Tales because for him it was like this is not real war. You know, like vampires yeah. in war. <laughs> Werewolf <running laughs> Werewolves, <around>. what the <laughs> hell? You know, so he's a stickler when it comes to historical events. But for some reason you know, the All-Star Squadron did not bother him in because of that, because it wasn't really set in the war, uh, save for a few issues. You know what I mean? Like, it didn't feature most of the JSA or the All-Star Squadron uh, going up against, let's say, a battalion of German troops. It wasn't really like that. It happened, you know, but as we'll progress through the series, right, Billy, our listeners will see what we're talking about. It didn't really happen like that, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah. They were hampered. Well, we'll get into why later on, why they couldn't, you know, directly face off against the Gestapo or against, you know, the uh, Einsatzgruppen or against, you know, Tojo's uh, legions um, in the Pacific theater. We'll get into why later on. But basically, the, my dad loved it because it was set in the the World War Two era, and then he could drop facts for me. You know, he loved to do that. He loved to sort of almost talk down to me. You know, being more knowledgeable in history, when he spoke to me about these issues, he would like be uh, in his. Uh, he would be holding court. You know, he'd be in his lecturer <laughs> mode, 
saying, oh, yeah, you know, oh, I see what they're referencing here. And oh, oh it's at this time of the war. <laughs> <laughs> and then he would drop some serious facts. So, yeah, I've, I'm very, oh, well, sorry, I listeners, I forgot to mention the second reason why I love this series so much. Obviously, the first being the, because of my dad reading it along with me. The second reason is this was one of the very first series that I was able to collect in its entirety as a comic book collector. And this was very difficult to do in South Africa because of the sporadic nature of the comic book availability in the corner stores. I don't know why, but All-Star Squadron was everywhere. It was in every corner store I went into. And uh, I, I managed to, without even going to a comic book store, which weren't really even a thing back in the 80s in South Africa, um, but, you know, eventually I filled up runs by going to newly, you know, uh, open comic book stores, right, Billy, who had back issue mm -hmm. bins and stuff like that. And that's how I managed to fill up my old runs. But no, All-Star Squadron and along with uh, a couple of other short-lived series, uh, I would was able to f fill up just by taking it off the spinner rack, you know. Mm. Um, yeah, so that's crazy. It was the very first series that that well not the very first the very first was actually blue devil that's the first series i filled up in its oh, entirety okay. uh just off of the spinner rack but this one was probably very early on maybe the third or the fourth series i was able to do that with, with uh come the late you maybe 1986 1987 you know the later 80s that's when i managed to fill mm -hmm. it up just by yeah. you know uh going to the corner stores and, and you know uh, twirling the spinner racks around hearing that satisfying creak <laughs> oh i love that sound <laughs> oh man it's a sound of our dreams so billy what about you man i mean i can't really tell the listeners how i got into the the, the series because i can't remember what was my first issue i i it was probably a couple of issues like a, a probably even a half a dozen or so that I must have picked up the first time around off of the spinner rack. But, but I'm interested about in, in more about, you know, your origin with this um, uh, series. How did you first, I mean, you obviously mentioned like it was just a couple of years ago, but, but tell us more about that. Yeah. Like I said, I grabbed num issue number one. Uh, I think it was in, a, it was in a store for sure. It wasn't, you know, eBay or anything like that back when, you know, we were still going into stores. I uh, hope that happens again soon someday Oh damn, yeah. <laughs> or in shows. But, um, yeah, I guess I grabbed it cause I thought, wow, you know, like five bucks or maybe it was even less than five bucks. I thought, you know, it's a number one of a, a series that people, you know, that I definitely trust their judgment, uh, said it was very good. So I thought oh, I'm going to grab number one. And if I think it stinks then I don't have to grab it again, you know, any more issues, but I read it and I thought it was very cool. And I also thought to myself, I, I got to get more. And the more I grabbed and then just kept reading pretty much in order up until, you know, maybe issue 20 or so, I thought it was great because like you had mentioned earlier, it's not the heroes, you know, fighting Nazis or whatever. It's the World War II's uh, a backdrop basically for, you know, this series. And, you know, at times it skirts away from, having any relevance to world war ii but that's you know further down the road and we'll get into that but like you said there's reasons for certain decisions that were made but i really think roy thomas you know he did a great job with this series and he is one of my favorites too so that's another thing that would lure me in anything that has his name on it i'll buy yeah yeah the reason why i uh, i mean this might be unfair to say but the reason why i asked you to go deeper into your origin with all-star squadron is yeah i've always you know, had this impression of you in my mind as being a Marvel guy, 
you know, for, when you were a kid at least or, or early on. Yeah. And of course you have a lot of DC series. You've got a huge collection, but you know, your, your favorites have always been Marvel. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the Roy Thomas thing there. Like I said, he's, he's probably, uh, he's definitely on my Mount Rushmore for favorite writers. And yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's, yeah. That's what I'll do then. I'll just, I'll jump over if I see him, you know, at some point, Oh, there's a DC book or even if it was an independent or something like that, I, I would always give that a shot because of, you know, my experiences with his stuff beginning with Marvel, but then moving on to DC for sure. Yeah. 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 And of course this is Roy, uh, having his cake and eating it. Basically it's it's his Uh baby. It's it's his dream series that he's always wanted to write because he was a DC fan first and foremost. Well, simply for the fact that when he was a kid, there was probably only DC plus a couple of other comic book companies like EC around, but the superheroes came mostly from DC and, and Fawcett. And that's the stuff he fell in love with. He loved Fawcett comics, but DC, well, national comics back then, he loved even more. And he was a big fan of the Justice Society. And that's why he interned at DC first, right after he, you know, he left college, um, because he, he wanted to write those characters. And then, of course... Mort Weisinger, you know, being the, the well, the personality we all know, um, you know, being so hard on Roy in those early years when he was just, you know, a, a fresh-faced, well, early pre-hippie looking kid <laughs> showing up at the offices of DC and then basically being relegated to Weisinger's personal slave and, and, and all of these uh, horrific bullying tactics from Weisinger just caused Roy to jump ship immediately and, and that's where the story started when he headed off to Marvel and became uh, Stan Lee's apprentice if you can put it like that but you know mm-hmm. the point is he's a fan of the Justice Society he knows almost everything about him uh, about them in fact he started the Alter Ego magazine uh, as a kid and uh, and already then tried to interview creators like Gardner Fox and those guys back then um, mm-hmm. and, and some of the Fawcett guys like Kurt Scheffenberger and those those people. He tried to, you know, uh, get early fandom uh, going. He jump-started early <laughs> fandom, I'd say, comic book fandom, yeah. um, with his Alter Ego magazine. And as we know, Alter Ego is still alive and well now, being published by Tomorrow's, which we oh, should, yeah. should all support, by the way. And they're also a great place to find some research uh, material on the Justice Society and the All-Star Squadron, if any of you listeners are interested tomorrow's publishing um you and i both use them billy so you know they're great for keeping the torch that roy started to to light they're great for keeping that torch lit um but i also think you know speaking about roy's desire to do this team when he eventually returned to dc after his his uh, long tenure at marvel as an editor and then just as a freelance writer uh eventually Mm -hmm. ended he went over to DC and, um, you know, he had done some other series for them, obviously, but he had lobbied for this one and uh, co-created it with Rich Buckler. And then mm-hmm. uh, they designed a host of uh, new characters, you know, to add to the Justice Society roster. And, uh, of course, it was a concern at the time, you know, this huge team. How's that going to work? It's going to be difficult for Roy to keep track of them. But, you know, the success of something like Legion of Superheroes, you know, has had proven, you know, from Keith Giffen and, and um, you know, um, that has proven to, in fact, and Paul Levitz, I should say, I, I forgot to mention him, that yeah. proved that it could be done. You know, it could be done at, at DC. And Roy was more than up for the challenge. I think he made it work. 
you know so he took this oh, yeah. huge cast of characters and turned it into a successful series for for quite a few years there well until crisis of infinite earth sort of uh you know upset the mm-hmm. momentum and the apple cart at dc but yeah. um billy i i'm telling you i was i'm so happy when roy you know did this series and announced it which i probably you know saw in the letter columns of the time but you know i wasn't very excited right. about it then because i didn't know really what it was but um, when I eventually picked up a couple of issues from the Spinnerax, that's when I saw this is going to be something great. This is something that I'm going to love. So, you know, listeners, we're going to talk all about that, about Roy and, um, you know, Roy and uh, Rich Buckler, and then eventually joined by Jerry Ordway. Oh, my God. Talk about a comic book penciling, you know, deity. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. All right, so um, yeah, that's that's basically it. That's all the information I'm going to drop this episode. Expect more information as we progress through this series, listeners, because there's lots of uh, you know myths and and facts and uh, half truths surrounding the origins of, of this. But uh, we're gonna enjoy um, you know arresting your ears with those things. But for now, this is very much an introductory episode, right, Billy? So we're just giving you a little bit of a smattering of of the all-star squadron and how it started and um how it saw its conception in the pages of another comic in fact yeah so we're gonna just like herman said give you a quick little you know look at uh, a little uh, intro a little preview i didn't realize this until probably just a couple of years ago that there even this preview even existed i thought all-star squadron number one was their first appearance you know and that was that and it just sprung right out of that book and there was nothing else going on and then all of a sudden somebody made mention of well yeah their first appearance is really in and they said justice league of america 193 and i thought "Uh uh-oh so i was assuming that entire issue was about you know the all-star squadron and then I got to realize that's not really the case. There's <laughs> what DC did was they took a Justice League comic, and I don't know why they did this, but right in the middle of that story, they put a uh, preview, <laughs> like a 14-page preview of uh, basically what leads into the All-Star Squadron being formed, uh, right in the middle of that comic. And the Justice League, yeah, the Justice League story to me is, eh, it's just okay. But this preview was really cool because, again, for me, not being a lifelong DC fan, I had never heard of some of these characters, especially the villains. You know, I've never, up until this point where I got these books, I had never I'd heard of the JSA, but I had never read any JSA comics or anything like that at all. So this was all new to me. So it was like a, you know, a kid in a candy store just <laughs> yeah. going absolutely ape reading this and discovering these new characters and stuff and it was a blast i loved it oh dude you're you're exactly right i also never read i mean there was a brief lived jsa series in the 1970s but i could never get my hands on them well i i wasn't even trying back then because i didn't know it existed i got a few issues of the freedom fighters uh series Mm. that that was there in the in the 1970s but not enough to to get the whole story and sometimes you, you know you read something in the letter columns you read something um, you know that the editors say or the fans comment on and then they mention a series and then you try to track it down because but there's only spinner racks basically that or or the news agents that where you could do that kind of search and then, yes you know there's nothing you can't find anything then you give up on that so that's what happened to me but i 
you know, I said it was one of my first complete series. This is, in fact, now not true because I never had this preview until recently. You know what I mean? I, I think maybe 10 years ago or uh, I, I bought like a, a big batch of comics off of eBay. And then, you know, one of the comics was JLA 193 with the preview in it. But I think mm -hmm. I had read the preview previously somewhere. I think I, I must have uh, borrowed the... Uh, either the showcase edition of, of All-Star Squadron, which included the preview, but I, I don't know where I read the preview before I bought the issue, but I but I did in fact read the preview. But that's all recent years, you know what I mean? So I, mm -hmm. I started with All-Star Squadron number one, just like you did, <laughs> just, you know, in the <laughs> 80s. So yeah, this preview, man, th this was some crazy stuff. <laughs> this was weird. <laughs> this is almost into the weird level weird. <laughs> oh, yeah. So we're going to get into that. Kidding. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm seeing that you you can also see this preview in Showcase Presents, the All Star Squadron, you know, number one uh, showcase, and that's then where Justice I read Society it. of America, yeah, I think a celebration of 75 years of DC. It says so. It must be one of those big, oversized, you know, yeah, books. Uh, you know, I have that, seen that the one that you just referenced. I have that one, the Justice Society of America celebration of 75 years. That's a recent hardcover. I think 2015. Yeah, 2015. Or, okay. Yep. Yeah, but I think I must have read, like you say, the. But but I don't own this though, okay. so it must have been from a, someone that I borrowed it from. I must have read the preview in black and white in the Showcase Presents volume because I think that was earlier, maybe ten years ago or something, that those Showcase volumes came out. And I remember reading that preview, and I was like blown away. I was like, how how did I never know that you know this preview <laughs> existed and that it's so awesome, you know? So yeah, yeah I've been reading All Star Squadron for thirty years, and this that was the first wow. time I happened upon the preview. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, I love hearing stuff like that. But all right. Well, here, I'll just uh, rattle off the uh, credits here quick. So we have, uh, like I said, JLA 193, and it's from, oh, let's see, August 1981, but the on-sale date was April 1981. Uh, that's quite a difference there. Yeah. But, you know, you get a, a preview page, like almost a cover inside here, and that cover is gorgeous, but that's Rich Buckler, and it says uh, Dick Giordano did the inks there, but beautiful little cover, if you want to call it that, for this preview, and then, but inside, you know, you get script, you know, yeah. like we said, Roy Thomas, and then pencils, Rich Buckler, and inks, Jerry Ordway, and then colors, Carl Gafford, and letters, John Costanza, so some perennial comic book names there for sure. <laughs> Yeah, 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 definitely. Some, some very famous guys. and um, So you right away, you know you're in for a good time here. <laughs> yeah, now the site that I'm looking at too, it's telling me that, you know, the pencils and inks, but it also says for Rich Buckler, it just says breakdowns. And it says for Jerry Ordway, finished art, which to me, that gives him a lot more credit than I thought. You know, I thought he had just inked, you know, pencils and there was, you know, but you figure breakdowns, and then somebody coming in and doing the finished art is a good bit of difference between just the pencil and inker. Yeah, definitely. No, no, no. You're right. I think Ordway had a lot more to do with it than than we uh, think in this er this early on in the game. Of course, he would become more of a force in the comic later on. But mm -hmm. you know, um, yeah, he already had a hand in it early on, and more. We should credit him with with, with much more than just um, you know the yeah. the uh, things that Roy and Rich Buckler brought to the table. And of course, Dick For Giordano, sure. legendary inker as well. Mm. You know, yeah. So yeah, you and I are going to be talking about uh, him uh, for a little bit here on oh, the yeah. <laughs> project. So, <laughs> but we don't want to get into that. We'll, we'll we'll save that for another time. Yeah. So. 
Okay, man. Uh, so I'm just going to fire off a little quick synopsis about this 14-page story, and then we'll get into talking about actually what goes on. Let's hit okay? it. Okay. <clears throat> so a presidential hand reaches for a telephone. The recipient is not there to answer, though. It's December 6th, 1941. Across the country, in Los Angeles, a charity race between the Flash, Green Lantern, and Wonder Woman ends with the Amazon princess winning. Afterwards, the three heroes are having some downtime in a park when they are accosted by Solomon Grundy. Back at the White House, FDR tries to again contact the JSA, but is unsuccessful. His vice president, Henry Wallace, suggests contacting the Laws Legionnaires, a.k.a. the Seven Soldiers of Victory. But FDR declines. Later that night, Sandman, Starman, and Johnny Thunder are attacked by Sky Pirate, and he subdues them with a gas gun. Up in Salem, Massachusetts, Dr. Fate sees his nemesis, Wotan, flying at his tower. When he attacks him, though, we see it was all a ruse by Wotan, and Fate knocked out his teammate, the Spectre. In Gotham City, we watch as Superman, Batman, and Robin are subdued by Professor Zodiac, and finally, Hawkman, Adam, and Dr. Midnight get attacked by the monster, a.k.a. Jason Rogers. But they get the upper hand and defeat him. The last scene shows FDR making a decision that will alter the course of history. All right, Herman. So what would you think of this one? <laughs> okay, this, this story is not really an introduction to the all-star squadron at all because <laughs> you know it features the 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 entire cast of the jsa the justice society of america and, and then even huh? as a bonus the seven soldiers of victory known like you say the the law legionnaires <laughs> back then mm -hmm. so you know yeah. it's sort of like roy traipsing through the 1940s superhero universe of national comics of dc and then you know, saying that this is the world that we're going to set stuff in. But then he teases us with the appearance of four, just basically uh, four civilians, you know, who are, who seem to have nothing to do. But, but you know, with the whole story as a whole, they're just like basically asides, you know, inserted by Roy. Passerbys. Yeah. yeah. But, um, <laughs> you know, uh, there, there is something lingering. I don't know if this is just Roy's storytelling or or the the way he sets up the atmosphere here there is something uh of importance revolving around these four characters that he inserts and uh, you're just thinking that oh this is just a setup for you know um another justice society of america comic but then they drop the name the all-star squadron you know um and of course you know the preview is for the all-star squadron so you know this name has already been you you're aware of this name and then uh president roosevelt you know, he mentions that, oh, I was hoping to contact the Justice Society because I was hoping that all of them could come together for a giant, you know, for a, a team, a giant team called the All-Star Squadron. <laughs> you know, so mm -hmm. you're thinking like, like this is almost like Roosevelt trying to, to copyright his own idea. <laughs> you know, the, the fact yeah. that he's, he keeps mentioning it over <laughs> and over again. And in fact, that does happen. But, you know, we won't we won't go into to that yet. But I thought the story was great in the fact that you get, you know, Roy in with what within 15 pages, you get him compressing the entire Justice Society cast or, or at least all the members that were important in the 1940s to him and to the readers, mm -hmm. of course, of, yeah. of the golden age of comics. 
And he does that well. He showcases their individual powers, their personalities, their, you know, uh, a little bit of the humor that he probably got from, from way back then. And then he manages to insert some, you know, Easter eggs for, for fans oh, of yeah. the old JSA. Uh, not the least of them being the fact that, you know, it features some old villains that that were almost considered to be the prime nemeses of some of the characters, which we'll talk about more just now. And also, you know, like, for instance, it starts off with a race, right, Billy, between <laughs> uh, Wonder Woman and Green Lantern <laughs> and The Flash, which Flash, yeah. incongruously, I mean, Wonder Woman wins. But why did he put that in there? <laughs> Because, in fact, I mean, that race references the cover of Comic Cavalcade number one from mm -hmm. December 1942. And, yeah. and this, this old cover to this, this old Golden Age DC comic is, um, you know, Wonder Woman winning in a race against the Flash and Green Lantern. So he put that in to start the issue off. I think that's a wonderful homage to the, the Golden Age comics of his youth. Oh, um, yeah. So overall, I would say this this is a great preview, but the story makes absolutely no sense because it relies heavily on, you know, um, the, the series proper. You know, this is just teasing us with, with a lot of cliffhangers, with, with uh, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of um, foreshadowing. So, of <laughs> yeah, course, it's like yeah. A preview of a preview, basically. Yeah, it's a preview <laughs> of a preview. That's the best way to describe it. Wonderful description mm -hmm. there, man. Yeah. So, you know, so I did love it. I loved it. And I loved it for the fact that every single encounter that the Justice Society has in groups, you know, there are some some of those individual encounters, you know, like the Dr. Fate one. But well, well, actually, the Dr. Fate one is not actually an individual encounter because it ends up to have the specter <laughs> thrown into the mix. But, you know, the, the, the fact that they're each encountering a villain, it's like mm -hmm. a small story in itself, you know, but it's mm -hmm. not really a story. Yeah. It's like a traditional comic book story which is like the superheroes versus a villain uh, but in every case the villain seems to get the best of them you know and um uh this reminds me of the old jsa jla crossovers you know that they had right in the 70s mm -hmm. and later on in the early 80s as well where you know the villains show up possibly from the secret society of supervillains or the injustice league or whatever and then they take out the heroes lickety split very quick, quick and easy. They managed to get the drop on the heroes. And then the heroes have to rely on some other members who might not have been uh, present or might have been late for the JSA JLA meeting <laughs> to, to, to save the day. So this is almost like that. It's, this is following the same formula, but I like that because it's been an established thing in DC for a while. And, and then Roy used it uh, to great effect, I might say. Because as we know that all of these heroes are in trouble at the end of this preview, right, Billy? And all of them are, in fact, going to yeah. be saved or they're going to get out of it thanks to some new additions to the roster. Um, mm -hmm. But not uh, directly, not like in the JLA, JSA crossovers like we think. But there's definitely going to be some, you know, um, some, some new players on the scene. And that's uh, teased by Roy uh, in this issue. <laughs> So great. Yeah, I loved it. I, I would give it five stars out of five if I had to. Yeah, I think. And, and anybody that came into this series cold, too, you know, if you didn't read any JSA or even any Silver Age, you know, comics, late Golden Age and Silver Age comics, you know, you'll find really quick that some of these characters are not who you, you know, were used to seeing. Like, of course, somebody like 
Green Lantern. You know, it's not Hal Jordan, it's Alan Scott. You know, and that was something that really uh, made me, I think, like this uh, series even more. You saw some of these other characters that it was, you know, the the, the golden age versions of those characters rather than the, the newer ones. Yeah, that's I really right. enjoyed that. That's right. That's right. I mean, um, one of the first batch of All Star comics I picked up as as a kid included uh, All Star Squadron number twenty in it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that was that's one of my favorite, if not my favorite, absolute favorite issue probably of the entire series, which features mm. Alan Scott Green Lantern on the cover. You know, so that was also my my first introduction to to the Green Lantern of Earth Two, and I was like, "What the hell, no!" And then when I read the comic, I'm like, "Oh my god, yes, <laughs> I'm an Alan Scott fan immediately." Yes. You know? yeah. So that was what Roy did. That was what he was so good at. He made you fall in love with these characters uh, right after meeting them. Even though for new readers of comics in the '80s at the time, they might have thought, "Who the hell are these old farts?" And why should I care? <laughs> and then Roy made you care <laughs> almost immediately after introducing the characters. Now, yeah, there's there's, mm-hmm. there's some things that obviously we're going to nitpick about, Billy. But, you know, um, uh, for instance, the stories are have to be quick. The introductions of the characters have to be fast because he's only dealing with 14 or 15 pages here. Uh, but I think he yeah. does a good job with it. But, you know, because this is comics comic books of the early 80s at the time um, and Roy is sort of writing for possibly I think in his mind a younger audience but also he's trying to keep the audience that read comics in the 40s it must have been a difficult thing to juggle with so so how I think he approached it was put enough easter eggs in there for fans of the 40s and and, and, and the golden age of comics you know people his age mm-hmm. reading this comic but oh, yeah. also put some stuff in there that younger readers would latch onto, and unfortunately, <laughs> the the things that he put in there for younger readers w- were things like oh, um, stupid plots, <laughs> you know. For instance, <laughs> you know, he he he. As this is this this is now the example I'm happening upon again, the race between Wonder Woman and the Flash and the and Green Lantern. You know that is obviously for older readers of the 1940s uh, to you know who might remember the comic cavalcade cover uh, from 1942 but then for the readers of the 80s for the kids he just wants you to accept as an 80s reader as a kid of comics a fan of comics that wonder woman could in fact win a race against the flash (laughs) (laughs) and she even asked the flash did you let me win and he says oh no no you surprised me (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know, he's like, or he some... almost took it for granted that he thinks I'm the Flash. I can beat anybody, so he didn't run as fast as he could yeah. from the get-go, and it cost him the race. <laughs> exactly. I mean, this uh, now make no mistake about it, listeners. This is the Flash, who can keep up with Barry Allen, who regularly breaks the bonds of the of the of the multiverse. You know, vibrating in between dimensions <laughs> to visit his pal Barry Allen, and then you know he he runs through time. <laughs> I mean, he he's <laughs> faster than light, if such a thing is, of course, impossible, but it's possible in the pages of comics. And he says, oh, that half a second you surprised me made all the difference. That's why you won. Half a second for the Flash? <laughs> what? That doesn't... No, that doesn't make any sense at all. And then Green Lantern. <laughs> why the heck is he in the race? <laughs> It's like what yeah. is the, the the green ring you know that he found supposed to give him super speed at times? No. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, like he couldn't even use the ring to like trip the two of them to win or something. Like they might as well have had Batman out there. <laughs> exactly, man. And then, you know, Wildcat shows up and Wildcat in his guise as Wildcat shows up and then makes excuses for his alter ego, the heavyweight boxing champion, Ted Grant, who should have shown up. Why didn't Ted Grant just show up? <laughs> you know, why didn't yeah. he just show up as himself as Ted Grant, the world heavyweight boxing champ? He shows up as Wildcat because apparently he wanted to meet them. He wants Wonder to... Woman, especially, I think. <laughs> especially. <laughs> yeah. But come on, he could have done that as Ted Grant, too. Oh, mm-hmm. man, it's ridiculous. I, you know, But it's cool in its ridiculousity, if there's a word like that. I just totally made that up in its ridiculousness. Uh, and then later on, they have a picnic in the park, you know, after the race. <laughs> and it then, was very golden age. Yeah, dude, it was it's very so golden, golden age. age. Yeah, they would do they would do goofy stuff like that in golden age. Even in DC Silver Age comics, you would still see silly stuff like that. Exactly. So to me, I, I like it though. It's a good callback to that kind of stuff. No, but... it's great. <laughs> it's great. But you know, there's also some kind of innuendo that that Roy Thomas drops there for. I think this must have been for modern readers, Billy, because. Okay, it is very mm-hmm. golden age and silver agey in its, you know, um, silliness of them having a picnic in the park right after the race and then chatting to each other. But then Wonder Woman says, oh, you know, um, you don't mind spending time with me, right, boys? Just, you, you know, you two guys, <laughs> you know, just two young strapping young men having a picnic in the park with a beautiful woman. You don't think that's strange, do you? And then Green Lantern says, oh, don't worry. <laughs> What <laughs> don't worry, Wonder Woman. Flash and I have ladies of our own. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? Oh man! And he says, "Oh, so we're all just friends here, okay? Don't get any ideas. Don't don't bring your Amazon, you know, mentality to the party. <laughs> don't bring your, you know, uh, free sexual, you know, um, morality to play here, One D." <laughs> yeah. Well, at least she wasn't just the secretary. I guess you know. We'll okay, be, that is that give is Roy a Thomas point. that right. <laughs> yeah, Roy tried to establish her as having way more agency here than she had in the old JSA comics, where she was supposed oh, to be this gosh. shining light of women's, you know, liberation and freedom, as you know, envisioned by by William Moulton Marston. But then she was relegated to being their secretary in the forties. <laughs> yeah, she's nothing like that here, folks. But still. <laughs> Green, that doesn't stop Green Lantern from treating her like it because what happens, Billy, right after the picnic, right after the picnic, Solomon Grundy just appears out of the, out of the, well, the, the water of the, this beautiful, you know, um, yeah. lake in the, in, in mm-hmm. what you'd expect to be maybe Central Park, right? Uh, or mm-hmm. no, no, it's in Washington, right? It's it in, LA. Be, in, in LA. In LA. Oh, sorry. It's in LA. Yeah. You're right. So he. Maybe it's the La Brea Tar Pits. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be that would be appropriate because Solomon Grundy was well for fifty years. He was lying in a swamp right after he was murdered. That's his origin story. Yeah. He was he was murdered in Gangsters. a swamp, and then. <laughs> but anyway, he he arises from this water like a swamp creature, and uh, then he attacks. And then Green Lantern immediately says, "Back, princess! This is no place for a girl." <laughs> Wonder Woman's like, "What?" Double ex- uh, double question mark. And, uh, you know, then she, uh, you know, Green Lantern is ineffectual. Probably as ineffectual as he is in Wonder Woman's mind as he would be in the sack with an Amazon princess. <laughs> because she's <laughs> really be miffed. <laughs> she's really offended. And she says, now it's a mere girl's turn, Lantern. 
I command you to surrender, monster. But of course, nothing works. And, uh, you know, all of them are ineffectual. <laughs> Not just the Flash and Green Lantern, but Wonder Woman too. She, they're all taken out by Solomon Grundy here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, um, this is another anachronism here because think about it. Solomon Grundy appeared much later on in, in DC continuity. Well, not much later on, but he appeared in 1944. This is 1941, uh, December uh-huh. of 1941 to be um, specific, right? I believe the 6th of December. Yeah. And, um, the, of course, for listeners who, who are versed in history, you'd know the significance of the date coming directly after this day. Uh, but, um, you know, he appears and then mentions the fact that he's fought Green Lantern before, but Green Lantern knows absolutely nothing about Grundy at this point in time. He's so, so surprised when Grundy mentions that, right, Billy? So this already <laughs> foreshadows the villain that uh, Roy is going to introduce, but I'm gonna we're going to leave him a, a bit of a mystery until a bit later, right? Until yeah, they yeah, name you just get him. a quick little name drop of him here at the end of it, but... Yeah, you don't know who was the, the puppeteer behind all of these uh, villains. And like you said, Roy does, you know, uh, a bit of a, a sleight of hand move here to make these things possible. Like you said, where these villains that didn't appear for, you know, 5, 10, 20 more years, how they're back, you know, pre-World War II times uh, yeah. harassing the JSA. He, he does a... He does a little um, <laughs> yeah, a switcheroo here. We'll see, and we'll talk about that more in the next one with uh, with him and that. But that's it's a good deal, though. He does a good job with it. I'll it's a damn that. good deal. And you know the fact that he's using yeah. the framing sequence as to be Roosevelt and his aide Harry Hopkins discussing that, lamenting the fact I should say that they can't mm-hmm. reach the JS, JSA in this time of crisis, which yeah. which possibly they shouldn't even know about yet because we'll get into that in the historical times later right billy but mm-hmm. yeah. but this is literally the day before a momentous event and roosevelt is frantically trying to contact the jsa but nobody's answering the phone possibly because their secretary's out having picnic with two <laughs> men <laughs> but but think about it um this is the framing sequence because every time they show us an adventure featuring a group of the JSA and that adventure ends with their defeat uh, at the hands of an old enemy. Um, Mm -hmm. And then uh, also the mention of a mysterious other person controlling this enemy or directing them to defeat this group of the JSAers. You have them cutting back to Roosevelt and Hopkins, then discussing, uh, you know, why they can't reach the JSA and uh, what could be done uh, if the JSA is not available. And that's when they mention the seven soldiers of victory. But um, yeah. <laughs> listen, listen to this. Harry Hopkins, he admits that, okay, they're the second choice because they, they're not the heavy hitters <laughs> that the JSA are. And then, you know, when he floats that idea to Roosevelt, Roosevelt just immediately dismisses them. <laughs> Isn't that an insult? He's like, <laughs> you know, but we can't, Harry. No, the JSA, the JSA, they're our best hope. <laughs> We got to get them on board. <laughs> I don't care about these second stringers, you know, and then, okay, so that's the framing sequence that they're using here to, to tell the story. Yeah. And then another one that Roy, it's sort of, I, I think you could call it a sub, sub framing sequence or something. I'm not yeah, so sure possible. about the nomenclature here, but it's to introduce these other civilian characters who are linked to the war effort, even though America's not in the war at this time. This is, December 1941 they wouldn't officially enter the war well well and in 24 hours they would <laughs> you know 24 hours later they would but <laughs> yeah. um, 
what we're, we're what I mean to say here is like these civilians that he introduces, four of them to be exact. Three of them are linked directly to the war effort. Uh, one is actually two are indirectly linked, but um, you know most of them are reporters. One is a geologist, <laughs> and and her link <laughs> to the war effort is the fact that her brother Rod Riley is is in the navy, and um, for some reason Rod has the power to just commandeer his vessel to drop his sister off, Danette Riley. This, this his sister called Danette Riley, the geologist, on a volcanic volcanic island. <laughs> uh, but you know he commandeers his vessel to make the trip to do that. Wow, talk about yeah. you know, <laughs> using your privileges. But you know, <laughs> then we we're introduced to uh, the very first one, right? I believe the civilian is uh, a guy called Johnny Chambers, who's uh, a cameraman. And actually, I should have meant something that I said earlier. <clears throat> it's not so much Roy Thomas introducing four new characters as it is him reintroducing. Uh, three characters out of the four that have, in fact, appeared in Golden Age comics in the early 1940s. Only one of them is a completely new character, and that is the sister of uh, Rod Riley, uh, Danette Riley. I mean, even Rod himself have, has appeared in the comics of the Golden Age in the early 1940s. But just to get back to Johnny Chambers, this uh, cameraman, he's at the, uh, the race. Uh, he's he's yep. uh, doing the filming of the race between Green Lantern and Wonder Woman and The Flash. And then the second one happens right after Roosevelt dismisses the Seven Soldiers of Victory so <laughs> ignominiously. And it's Libby Lawrence. And, and in fact, she's a, already a famous um, news reporter, but she's a newsreel reporter. You see her on an early form of television there. Uh, yep. Yeah. In the, uh, well, in um, the, well, what would you call it? The, the home of one of the, uh, other JSAers, I think it's, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the home of Ted Grant, or, or sorry, sorry, Ted Knight. Um, yes. But yeah. it, but you know, it might just as well have been Johnny Johnny Thunder's apartment, or it might even have been, uh, you know, Carter Hall's apartment. We don't know. But <laughs> yeah. um, basically, uh, the three of them are in their civilian guises right after listening to the civilian Libby Lawrence's report. And for those of you, obviously, most of our listeners know who I'm talking about, Johnny Thunder. He, he, well, he doesn't have a superhero name, but Carter Hall and Ted Knight, you might be familiar with them, right, Billy? Who are they? Oh, Hawkman. And I can't remember. Starman. But Ted Knight is the star. Oh, yeah, Starman. Yeah, that's yeah. right. You know, it's confusing yeah. because Ted Grant is Wildcat. Ted Knight is Starman, yep. right? So it's, it's, it's confusing. But they're the next part of the, the story uh, where, you know, they're, hanging out possibly in Ted Knight's swanky penthouse and they see this giant floating glowing pirate ship appear right outside their window <laughs> uh, oh sorry I, I'm mistaken it's Wesley Dodds right Billy Wesley it's Dodds Sandman. The I Sandman. get Sandman what am I talking Man about all the time. yeah this is not yeah. oh sorry sorry okay I'm, I'm I was on the wrong page I'm on the right page now the the this is Sandman Starman and, and Johnny Thunder and it's probably Wesley Dodds's apartment right yeah, Later yeah, on, yeah. Carter Hall, you know, as Hawkman will appear, but this this is this is earlier in the comic, and they they see this floating pirate ship appear, and like you <laughs> mentioned in your synopsis, it's the Sky Pirate. Um, he's the next part of the story, and again, the JSA is taking out quite easily and ironically for Sandman, right? Because what does 
the sky pirate news <laughs> on them, right, Billy? Sleeping gas. Gas gone. Yeah. And Sandman, uh, that's his thing. He must be thinking just before he passes out, damn, I'm going to sue you for copyright infringement or something. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> like, that was hilarious. That was very ironic. And then, and then possibly my favorite but the most batshit hilarious sequence is the Dr. Fate sequence, right, Billy? <laughs> Isn't yeah. this just crazy? <laughs> All right, like yeah. you said in your synopsis, you hinted at this. Dr. Fate, he's also there. There's a tower. His, his famous, you know, abode, which is almost as famous as Dr. Strange's Sanctum Sanctorum over at Marvel. Yeah. This, mm -hmm. uh, the Tower of Fate, which is in mm -hmm. Salem, Massachusetts. Um, he's in there with his uh, lovely wife, Inza, who, mm -hmm. who's just a, a total babe. I love her. I love the way Jerry Ordway draws her. I love the way... You know, uh, Rich Buckler draws her. Everybody, you know, has has done her justice over the years. And uh, Dr. Fate is using the orb of Naboo. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, that, that's familiar to the listeners of uh, Into the Weird, the orb of, of something. But every magician <laughs> seems to have an orb, right? Oh, you got this it. You got it. The orb of Agamotto, folks. Anyway, the orb of Naboo shows Fate's old nemesis, Wotan, approaching the tower. And fate, mm -hmm. you leaps at the chance to do battle with him, right, Billy? But hey, yep. he's not at full power. He's only wearing half a mask, which is not even the real, uh, you know, helmet of Naboo. Uh, this mm -hmm. just basically covers his eyes and head. This helmet that he's uh, fashioned yeah. for himself, and he admits that he's underpowered. He doesn't have his full magical abilities. He only has invulnerability, flight, and super strength at this point in time. Yeah. Um. And then, which is very weird, because obviously this is a, a leftover of some of the JSA comics from the 70s, but I'd, I wasn't aware of it at the time that he had, in fact, uh, you know, will, willingly taken off the mask of Naboo because Naboo was making too much of the decisions that impacted his life. Um, you know, yeah. really mostly related to Inza. He wanted to, to have a normal life with Inza, but Naboo, you know, the duties as a Lord of Order you know, kept him from, from keeping Inza happy. <laughs> <laughs> now, now this is where it gets crazy, right, Billy? He takes on Wotan, who was a, a threat when he was full-on Dr. Fate, but now he takes him on just as an invulnerable flying man, and um, mm -hmm. he decides, okay, he doesn't have much magic, but he's just going to ram Wotan with a super, you know, speed, or well, not super speed, just a a straightforward flying vulnerable bash. Yeah. Just yeah, head just, bottom. <laughs> just head bottom. And then what happens is Cthum, you know, giant explosion as he smashes into Wotan and then the Spectre and Fate falls to the ground. <laughs> yeah. Wotan reveals that he had been disguised as a tree. <laughs> just just watching this event. So he had obviously fooled both Fate and the Spectre. He said he posed he he sh uh, he cloaked Doctor Fate in an illusion of one of the Spectre's old enemies, Kulak, mm -hmm. uh, uh, who's an uh, other dimensional sorcerer with with three eyes, if I recall correctly. And then he had cloaked, you know, the Spectre in his own image of of Wotan. And then yeah. for some reason, Billy, the Spectre and Doctor Fate both decided on the same battle plan. They were gonna ram their enemies. <laughs> In the exact same way, and they ended up ramming themselves. And they now, how do you knock out the Spectre? Come on, how do you? Yeah, do I mean, that? yeah, I mean, it's like if you read, like that's see, that's was tough for me, not being a lifetime, you know, lifelong DC reader, where it's like 
I'm used to the specter from the Bronze Age where he was, you know, Michael Fleischer and Jim Apparel, where he could just do anything he wanted. There's no way somebody's going to fly at him and knock him unconscious. It's not going to happen. So, dude, it's like, no. okay, so this is a different, different guy. So, no, this is just the, the newest. Well, this is just the specter in Roy Thomas's mind, but I think this is also just the specter <laughs> for, for the duration of this one issue because no man in the golden age the specter was even more powerful i mean jerry siegel who created him you know co-creator of superman also created the specter i mean they had the specter (laughs) tossing planets at foes (laughs) you know seriously dude they they had that and of course you know the jim aparo specter you know was omnipotent you know in his his power so no this is insane just having the dr fate flying full speed into the specter and then you know, they both <laughs> rendered unconscious by the impact and then you know uh. wotan gloats over his brilliant plan and then you know we have this scene mentioning which i mentioned earlier about this uh, navy uh i think he's a like a captain in the navy right um, rod riley dropping mm-hmm. off his sister danette riley on this uh, volcanic island she's she's a geologist she's gonna study it <clears throat> And obviously you think like, what is this? This is not important. But you, you have this feeling of Roy setting yeah. up something. And then you have uh, okay, another crazy sequence, Billy. Are you going to talk Here's, to us about this, this is, one? Yeah, this is my favorite. And it's not even <laughs> I knew it. So you have Batman, Robin, and Superman uh, in Gotham. And they're getting, uh, what is it like? Basically opening a new USO. <laughs> yeah, a new club. Which is, yeah, which is hilarious. So, you know, you have a captain in the armies, you know, congratulating them, you know, giving them handshakes and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden <laughs> there's an explosion. And this guy, here's another guy I had never heard of either. Uh, Professor Zodiac. I had never heard of this guy, but he comes blasting into the place on this insane looking ship that has like moons and stars and planets and stuff all over it. And the three of them, you know, look at him like, what are you doing? Like, they're just going to wipe the floor with this guy. And Superman goes to, to attack him because he he basically pisses off Superman because he says, what I want is Superman and Batman's surrender, or I shall destroy the entire structure and everyone in it. And Superman just says, why, you arrogant? <laughs> and then Batman cuts him off and says, let Robin and me handle this, Superman. But Professor Zodiac has a vial of some kind of liquid, and as soon as Batman and Robin make a move towards him, he just throws it at them. And Robin uh, says, he's just sprinkling a few drops of water our way. But you turn the page, and that water, whatever it was, turned the two of them into children, like infants, toddlers. <laughs> oh, man, it's insane. Oh. It's it's crazy. The visual's great. Oh, it's, it's so crazy. And, you know, like, at one point in time, the Navy guys, they're trying to also help out. So they said, this looks like a job for the Navy. <laughs> Superman... <laughs> He finds a fence that the, the that one of the the naval officers would you know steal his battle cry his line. <laughs> so he's like, keep it for the North Atlantic sailor. <laughs> <laughs> and then oh yeah, you get another famous Superman line when they get turned into children. Great Scott, they've both turned into infants, too small even to fit their costumes. <laughs> <laughs> And then, you and know, then, yeah, of course, you know, he tries to attack him and he has a some kind of like the philosopher's stone like that. Yeah, yeah. And it's got kryptonite on it. So that drops Superman. So he just defeated all three of them in 
about 30 seconds flat. <laughs> yeah, man, it was the easiest defeat of the world's finest probably ever uh, by a foe who's, who's, well, ridiculous. But of course he has some power. He's got the Philosopher's Stone. Um, yeah. I think his name is I mean, you, you and I talked about it earlier, though. It's What's going to happen is in the next issue or two, we're going to find out that, you know, the, the person who is basically employing all these yeah. villains to stop the JSA, he's done his homework. So it, it, he knew how to defeat these people already. So that was a big part of this. So right now it seems utterly ridiculous, but we'll figure out it's it's not as far-fetched as you think. Yeah, 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 <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, you know... um. Uh, it'll all make sense, listeners, but we don't want to spoil too much, right, Billy? So we're going to keep no, it a no, little no. bit of a mystery until <laughs> um, uh, the second episode. But, you know, uh, uh, Roy, that's why I mentioned he, he did a really good job of setting up stuff in the preview because who wouldn't want to come back and read more of this, you know? Right. Yeah, this was a huge cliffhanger here. And like you said, Damn. not only is it a huge cliffhanger with what's happening to the JSA, you obviously also know there's something called the All-Star Squadron coming that's going to be something totally different from the JSA. So, yeah, this is huge. But I, if I was reading this and, you know, a, a kid, uh, when did this come out? 1981. I would have been six years old. Oh, I would have eaten this alive. I would have went crazy over this. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm. And then, uh, um, you know, we've got the scene. Uh, okay, excuse my earlier faux pas again, listeners, where I, I mentioned it was Carter Hall in the swanky apartment. No, Carter Hall is appearing now as Hawkman in his full in Hawkman regalia. DC, yeah. Yeah, along <laughs> with Dr. Midnight and the Atom, Al Pratt. You know, he's he later on he yeah. would get superpowers, but... Um, you know, in the in the beginning of the All Star Squadron, he was very much the Atom from the the nineteen forties. Mm-hmm. You know, the Golden Age Atom, where he's just very good at fisticuffs. Um, and uh, he's with Doctor Midnight and Hawkman, looking up at Abe Lincoln. <laughs> you know, at the Washington Memorial, <laughs> and then they're attacked by who? <laughs> <Ooh>, Billy, <laughs> this guy's ridiculous. Dude. Oh my god! Yeah, uh, the monster, <laughs> Mister Rogers. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> yeah, insane. I mean. And this is another guy I had never heard of either, but um, I you know when you look him up, you're just like, and how did he get this name? You know, I mean, it's it's absurd. It, it is absurd. Like we said, it's you're reading this as a longtime DC reader, you're just thinking to yourself, what in the world is going on here? This is ludicrous. But like we said again, he had you know prior knowledge of these people, and you know a plan with somebody behind him that's a lot smarter than him. But it doesn't quite work out for this guy like it did the other. Uh, the other villains though. <laughs> now think about it, Billy. Now, okay, okay, this guy's obviously a Jekyll and Hyde, you know, knockoff, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Mr. Hyde knockoff. Yeah. So now what if you had given this serum? Because apparently, I mean, in his guise as Mr. Rogers, that's his, his real real life name. He's a very nice guy. <laughs> Just think about it. What if you had given the real Mr. Rogers? I'm talking about Fred Rogers here. <laughs> what if you had given the real Mr. Rogers this serum? Kids would have been traumatized all over America for generations to come. This, Mr. Rogers was really this, you know, this hide figure. <laughs> yeah, this monster. <laughs> Damn, oh, but man, this was the great. Dialogue is, yeah, the dialogue is hilarious. He basically kicks the crap out of Dr. Midnight and Hawkman, which is pretty cool. And yeah. he says, that's my mission, you morons, to get all three of you. And Adam says, yeah, well, maybe you will and maybe you won't. And he just clocks the guy and knocks him completely unconscious. Kachuk. And then he starts trying, <laughs> he starts trying to question him as he's like half knocked out. And he says that he'll talk. And he goes... Hey, something's happening to this clown. 
yeah. <laughs> and then he said he's turned into somebody else. <laughs> kind of a wimpy old guy, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, well, the, I like that. you know, the fact that this guy takes out Hulkman and Dr. Midnight, and Hulkman's kind of the hard man of the group, of the JSA, you know, he's he's yeah. tough. I'd say he's even tougher than, than Ted Knight, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Ted Grant than Wildcat. But, Grant, you know, yeah. he gets taken out so easily, and then the Adam steps up. Now, the Adam's pretty impressive as a hand-to-hand combatant, but you, I didn't expect this. One punch. <laughs> Knocks the guy, like, basically Clock. out. <laughs> and then, you know, he's ready to, to, to go to wail on him some more. Do you see his, like, fist is just, like, trembling, just ready shaking. to, like, shaking and shaking the way Buckler drew it or, the, or or whoever had a hand in that that bit of an image. That was brilliant because he's he's furious and then of course this guy name drops the antagonist and i think billy we can we can this is not a spoiler listeners we can name drop right. who it is um you longtime mm-hmm. all-star squadron fans listening to the show you already know who it is so who is it billy who does this old guy the wimpy mr rogers mention yeah he's as he's being you know throttled by adam he says it it was and he says degaton and then yeah, they're degaton. like yeah, okay what's that you know they have no clue who that is cuz again it's you know there's a bit of a yeah going on here with roy thomas and what he's writing here so yeah that's right that's right um so a very ominous name i remember as a kid whenever i read that name it has a great sound to it right billy you immediately Mm -hmm. know this is a name that does not uh belong to a philanthropist or someone who's (laughs) who's uh you know selling war bonds (laughs) no 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 (laughs) this is the name of someone who possibly could get give hitler and in fact does give hitler a run for his money <laughs> so we'll yeah and then yeah go ahead oh we'll learn more about him definitely much much yeah. more he pops up and quite then right a bit. after that yeah right after that you see a, a cloaked figure that's a bit of a you know a secret for the next issue as well uh walking around washington dc contemplating some things and then the issue ends with uh you know washington dc and FDR and uh, Harry trying to, uh, you know, figure out what to do and then making a decision, which is, you know, that. Yeah. Basically, you know, the U.S. is going to enter the war. So, yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, this this cloaked figure that you mentioned um, who, mm-hmm. who stares at the Washington Monument and he's at the Lincoln Memorial who walks away. They mentioned that he's walking away with strangely metallic sounding footsteps on the rough concrete. Um, he's the final... Mm-hmm. Uh, civilian but he's not I mean obviously he's the weirdest civilian of them all but one of our favorites right <laughs> Billy I, I, I'd oh, say yeah. we'll get into <laughs> that in uh, who's our favorites and who who we least like in the squad uh, we'll, in the squadron we'll get into that in the next episode but you know he's the mm-hmm. final uh, mystery character that was introduced along with Danette Riley and Libby Lawrence and of course Johnny Chambers um, and then you know you have this ominous last sequence of panels where the 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 bell sounds you know it's kind of like uh, the Ernest Hemingway novel for whom the bell tolls you know which chronicled mm-hmm. the, the Spanish Civil War uh, this is sort of the, the the final bell tolling for America because it turns out that Roosevelt could not get a hold of the JSA and now it foreshadows doom because Roosevelt is in possession of something he should not be in possession of by the way historically uh, although there's a whole, you know, um, controversy surrounding that, a whole, you know, um, 
kind of like uh, but but it's been debunked believe but i'll get into that right. it's just it's a it's a whole conspiracy theory uh which yeah. is uh, totally baseless but uh, roosevelt is in a position of this communique uh this uh deciphered um secret code that has been uh, intercepted from the japanese empire and uh, that's why it turns out that he wanted the all-star squadron from the very beginning from the start yeah. of the comic he wanted them to quickly assemble because there's a threat and the threat is now it's it's happening because as this bell sounds we realize that this also uh, indicates that the, the the next day has dawned and the next day is december 7th 1941 a day of yeah. of course that we all know uh lives in infamy and in roosevelt's mm -hmm. time at this point will live in infamy December 7th, yeah. 1941, a day which will live in infamy. You know, so I've, I've been told by friends that I should not, you know, try to uh, do a Roosevelt voice because it's disrespectful of what's going to happen. So I apologize to any of you people, you know, out there who might be offended by that. But, you know, it, it obviously I'm just trying to put it into the context of, of what's going to happen. Most of you know the event we're referring to, right, Billy? Yeah. And uh, we're just going to mention it. It's Pearl Harbor. Then This is the day that Pearl Harbor is uh, destined to happen. And Roosevelt did not reach the JSA in time. And, um, you know, he's in, in possession of information that shows that there is an attack that's being planned on the U.S. on this very day. And the All-Star Squadron could not be reached. And this is almost like doomsday. <laughs> so yeah. that's where they leave us. And uh, yeah. Uh, with with some great uh, creator credits at the end there too, Billy. Roy Thomas, Rich Buckler, writer, co-creators, penciler, and then for some strange reason, Jeremiah Ordway. <laughs> Did you see that? Embellisher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a couple of times I've seen that. And I, it, very early on in his career. Yeah. So I don't know if they were, you know, busting his balls or what because he was the new kid on the block. But a couple of early things I've seen that on and I thought, what the heck? Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Like, okay, Jerry exactly. Ordway, yep. And, and, you know, it, it, the, the sound of the, the clock, you know, tolling the hour of midnight comes from this giant grandfather clock that, in fact, was in the White House at the time. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's still there, but it was there during um, President Rose, Roosevelt's tenure. Uh, well, he, he was the only president to serve four terms, right, Billy? So this was well into yeah. his third term or not well into his third term, but early on in his third term. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that shows you the, the amount of confidence most of the American people had in him. And uh, this is the mm -hmm. ominous sound we hear. Bong, bong, bong. And it tolls the beginning of the new day. Obviously, the 12 o'clock midnight chime that the grandfather clock uh, is emitting. And, um, you know, mm -hmm. that's why it's so disturbing. Such so such a momentous day dawning. It's December 7th. And, um, you know, I think it's a great way to end the comic on. That's that's why I mention it. It's just a, it's a wonderful, ominous a bit of foreshadowing, not just the fact that all the JSA members are in dire straits and possibly at death's door at this point in time and has been kidnapped for some nefarious purpose the day before they could have they might have made a difference. But yeah. also the fact that now we know that the day has dawned when the U.S. is about to enter World War Two because of a nefarious act. That's being per that's going to commence soon, uh, that very morning, in fact. Yeah, I thought you know Roy Thomas did a great job with those scenes with uh, job, yeah. FDR. Yeah, they're very dramatic, very 
you know, even looking at it from a perspective of, you know, being, you know, respectful to that kind of stuff. He did great. I, to me, that's really one of the best things about that. Yeah. You know, no. and then even the next issue that comes up, I always thought, man, he did a great job with that. Yeah. So I, I guess we'll talk more about the historical tie-ins in the next segment, right, Billy? But there's a couple of things yeah. we should mention. Um, uh, and it's definitely not going to be, uh, you know, um, I won't lay the blame at Roy Thomas's feet because working with the information they had at the time, obviously this was uh, what he used to write the story. But um, you can't do a comic like this. We teased this during the, the, um, the preview episode of um, the World on Fire podcast. You can't do a comic like this without referring to the historical events surrounding it because it's so rooted mm. in that you know, in, in yeah. the theater of war, in the Pacific, and of course, in the European theater of war. But since that's only going to, you know, be um, pertinent in the next episode, we'll leave that for um, our next recording, right, Billy, when we'll get into the events, uh, historically speaking, that would, uh, you know, serve to inform um, the rest of the comic. Well, thanks for tuning in, everybody. Uh, Herman and I had a blast with this first, you know, full-on episode. Um, if you haven't listened to the trailer, go back listen to that. But, you know, just to let you guys know, uh, our next episode will be out sometime, hopefully early January, you know, after the holidays and things have calmed down a bit. And then, uh, you know, we'll be diving right into All-Star Squadron number one. And I am really looking forward to that one. I know you are too, buddy. Yeah, definitely, man. There wasn't much we could do with just this preview, but, um, you know, once All-Star Squadron 1 gets underway, we'll be able to introduce our segments and our different parts of the show discussing this different aspects of the comic, um, which would be a complete story, right, Billy? This one is just a little bit of a, mm-hmm. a, a foretaste, <laughs> you know, just mm-hmm. tantalizing your taste buds a little bit for more superhero war stories. So, yeah, look for that in the first couple of weeks of January. We'll, we'll give you a more specific date on Twitter if you follow us on there. Yeah, I mean, in the meantime, you know, happy holidays to everybody. You know, whatever it is you celebrate, you know, hopefully you have a good time and uh, everybody can just kind of probably stay at home, but just, you know, enjoy the holidays with your immediate family there at home. And, you know, that'll be great, right? Yeah, definitely. Seasons, greetings, and uh, happy holidays to you from us here in Taiwan as well. I know you guys will stay safe. I'm, I'm, I trust in your better judgment and uh, just keep it a nice and warm and cozy Christmas uh, filled with hopefully lots of presents uh, that uh, include comics and, and, and all of that assorted goodness. So yeah, from, from us here at the Wolf cast, which is the World on Fire <laughs> podcast. We're not going to go for that, listeners. <laughs> we, well, we, we were going to go for Asscast, but you know, that's a little too uh, lewd. <laughs> Yeah, even Superman loose, so. was against that. So how can we go against the big blue S? <laughs> the ass. Yeah, you can't. Don't, yeah, don't take off Superman. <laughs> oh, no. So, no. yeah. So, yeah, if you want to look us up, uh, you know, you can look for us on Twitter. I'm at BillyD underscore Licious. And then Herman, where are you at? I'm at Dark Longbox. And our other show is at Into Weird on Twitter. Look for us there. We'll be posting some more updates about the World on Fire podcast and, of course, other comic goodness soon to come um you can always find us there engaging us in discussions concerning comics and we'll be glad to reply and of course billy they can send feedback to us um concerning this show and um where can i do that at 
It's a world on fire podcast at gmail.com. And I have been toying around with the idea of, you know, a uh, Twitter handle for uh, for the show. So we'll see. Maybe if I'm feeling froggy, I'll do that. And maybe I won't. <laughs> we'll see. But <laughs> for sure, you can hit us up at those two Twitter names and then a world on fire podcast at gmail.com as well with any feedback. And we'd love to hear from you. So please take part one way or the other. <laughs> Excellent. And remember to, uh, you know, buy those war bonds. You know, and uh, you know, <laughs> give some some of your recyclables for for scrap iron for the scrap iron drives, folks, because we need it. Yeah, the war efforts on, and uh, this time it's against the coronavirus pandemic. But it might as well have just been against some terrible enemy. <laughs> not not always foreign. I mean, the virus is not foreign, folks. Just, just don't think like that. <laughs> I'm talking about here the boredom as the enemy. Comics are our, you know protection our weapons against boredom so the mm-hmm. enemies of boredom yes that's who we are <laughs> so yeah, Billy, with sure. that, so, yeah. yeah we'll say goodbye and um yeah keep the world um turning by listening to a world on fire and we'll try to to you know entertain you with that folks as long as we can as long as the the comic books last <laughs> For sure, yeah. Stick with us. It's going to be a good ride. We're going to have a good time with this. So if you're a fan of All-Star Squadron, definitely tune in every month. Definitely. And uh, Merry Christmas to you all and um, Happy New Year. And we'll, we'll hear from you again soon and you'll hear from us. So take it easy, folks. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. See ya.